Warning, this episode contains brain food that will lead to improved emotional and social intelligence. Give us one hour and we'll help you change the way you think about happiness. Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress-Kamen is fresh, optimistic, and purpose-driven media that promotes well-being from the inside out. Each week, Lisa spotlights diverse trendsetters and change agents who are the greatest contemporary thinkers and doers, devoting their lives to creating a better world in which to live. Your host, Lisa Cypress-Kamen, is a widely recognized applied positive psychology expert, author, documentary filmmaker, and lecturer specializing in optimal lifestyle management. Let's get to it. Here's Lisa. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, wherever you are. Thanks for joining us on today's show, where you will learn about caring for people with Alzheimer's disease in a new light of hope. My first guest is Dr. Gayatri Devi, and this episode originally broadcast in December of 2018. Let's join the conversation. Dr. Gayatri Devi, who is an attending physician at Lenox Hill Hospital, North Weill Health, and a clinical professor of neurology at Downstate Medical Center. She is a board-certified neurologist with additional board certifications in pain medicine, psychiatry, and behavioral neurology, and served on the faculty of New York University School of Medicine as clinical associate professor of neurology and psychiatry until 2015. She is the author of over 50 publications in peer-reviewed journals on many topics of memory loss, as well as books on estrogen, memory, and menopause. And I am delighted to have her with me today to talk about her new book, The Spectrum of Hope, An Optimistic and New Approach to Alzheimer's Disease and Other Dementias. Welcome, Dr. Debbie. Thanks for joining me on Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. Thank you so much for having me, Lisa. I'm delighted to be on your show. Oh, uh, well, it, it is a pleasure. And, and, and we, don't, we don't associate Alzheimer's and happiness However, brain health is directly associated with happiness, and this is where I think your work ties in beautifully with, with what we do over here. Talk about um, the spectrum of hope and what, what got you interested from the beginning in looking at neuroscience and, and, and brain health. Um, so I've um, always enjoyed the brain. I think it's the last frontier as far as the areas of our body that we don't know much about. Um, So I've always approached the brain from both the organic brain part as well as the mental mind part and looked at both together. And I think nothing is more fascinating than the brain. And I believe there's a lot that we need to know about the brain. Um, So it's it's something that gives me daily joy. I've been working in this field since 1986 and specializing in the area of memory loss since 1994. And to this day, there's not a single day that I come into work and say, wow, I can't believe what a great job I have. I can't believe how much uh, joy and fulfillment I get out of every single day. Um, So along the lines of happiness and your radio show, uh, your talk radio show, I just want to say that there are a couple of happy facts to know about Alzheimer's. One is that Um, most people with Alzheimer's never get diagnosed. They have the pathology in the brain and live their lives out in the community 
with perhaps some forgetfulness, but um, never actually have clinical symptoms or have clinical symptoms so mild on the spectrum that they never even need treatment. Um, that if people do begin to have symptoms and they do need treatment, then the currently available medication, while not a cure, still is fairly helpful in slowing progression. I have patients in my practice who've stayed stable for 20 years um, from the time I really started subspecializing in the area and come in to see me on their own and live at home alone. Um, so those are some important facts that people are less aware of concerning Alzheimer's. Uh, and I think that's why I wrote the book. Well, I, and I think this is so hopeful to family members like me. And, and, and there are many people in my circle where there is a diagnosis in the family. And at first it takes your breath away. It's practically the C word, right? What the C word once yeah. was. Mm-hmm. And, and that's actually true, Lisa. There have been surveys that, that have found consistently that patients over the that people, all of us over the age of 65, are more afraid of Alzheimer's than we are of cancer, the C word, as you call it. <laughs> um, and that's surprising to me. I, you know, because I'm a neurologist, I also see patients with uh, brain tumors. I see patients with stroke. Um, and I've had patients with malignant brain tumors who have less than six to eight months to live with the best case scenario approach treatment with more gusto and more energy than they do when they've told that they have a diagnosis of Alzheimer's. So it's interesting to me that once people, people are so scared about the possibility of a future where they don't recognize themselves, where they don't recognize their loved ones, that they would rather just fold up their lives and not fight or get treatment for their condition when it's Alzheimer's, yeah. whereas in something like a brain tumor that's malignant, where they know they're going to be dead in six to eight months, they will oftentimes be fairly aggressive about treating, seeking treatment. So there's a conundrum there. I th yeah, I, I, I definitely see that. In your book, The Spectrum of Hope, you, you talk about why it's important to tailor the treatment plan for in the individual, that there is not just sort of one-stop shopping. Okay, you received the diagnosis, this is what you're getting, and that's it. This is a very different approach to treating the disease in terms of right. protocol. And, I, and Sure. And, you know, we are now doing that with every other disease. When somebody has cardiac disease, it's not one size fits all. People get different types of drugs. They, some people get interventions. Some people get certain kinds of exercise. Other people don't. Some people have dietary modifications. So there is a whole series of different ways to approach heart disease or kidney disease or diabetes. Whereas with the brain, with Alzheimer's, which can affect different parts of the brain, causing different symptoms, um, we kind of take everybody and put them in the same diagnostic in-basket. And we treat them all the same. And one of my friends who works in the field um, runs a major Alzheimer's center. He says, you know, 20 million people with Alzheimer's disease have 20 million different types of Alzheimer's disease because everybody's brain brings a whole different perspective to the condition, which is very yeah. different from the heart because the heart is just a muscle. The brain determines who you are and how you respond. So that there are people who have... Uh, brains that are riddled with plaque 
where there's the deposits of the pathological deposits that you see in Alzheimer's, the plaques and the tangles, who never have clinical symptoms. Why is that? What is it about their brain that prevents mm. them from having symptoms? Why is it that some people have plaques that are just localized to one area that never, ever spreads, never goes to the other parts of the brain, so they stay with just some deficits? Why is it that there are people who have Alzheimer's plaque and pathology who may just have mild symptoms, stay on the mild end of the spectrum, never progress past that? So there are, and there are people, why is it that you can have a pair of identical twins, one of whom has Alzheimer's, and the other doesn't, and live into their 80s. So there are all these questions that we don't know about it, um, and we end up treating all patients the same way. And I think that's doing both the patients and the communities that they live in a major disservice. I agree. And what about the the, the mind, body, spirit, and uh, emotional connection to... um, encouraging or maintaining quality of life. It's not just through medicine that we help our loved ones maintain their dignity and quality of life. There's so many other factors that contribute to this. Oh, totally. You know, and I think one of the most, you're so right about that, because one of the most important things that needs to be supported in someone with a diagnosis of Alzheimer's or another type of dementia is confidence. You got to keep up their confidence. Because that's one of the first thing that goes. If you or I were to be in a situation where we feel we're going to underperform, one of the things that we need bolstering off, we, we get confidence from our friends, our family. They say, oh, go ahead. You're going to be fine. In patients with Alzheimer's, they constantly have to prove their competence on a daily basis. I had a tragic story which kind of demonstrates the situation. I had a patient who uh, was a woman in her 70s who had been told that she had Alzheimer's. Her husband told everyone else that, including all their friends, that she had Alzheimer's. She withdrew into herself. She barely spoke to people. She kind of became really quiet. She used to be a really social person. And I actually met her socially. I was sitting at a dinner table with her, her husband, and a bunch of other of their friends. And people spoke around her, They spoke through her. They spoke to her, but almost at her. And she barely responded. And I thought, okay, well, you know, it's interesting. She doesn't really want to engage. We're going to take a break. And when we come back, we'll carry on the conversation with Dr. Gayatri Debbie about her new book, The Spectrum of Hope, An Optimistic and New Approach to Alzheimer's Disease and Other Dementias. To learn more, please visit nymemory.org. Once again, that's nymemory.org. And on Twitter, at Gayatri Debbie. Here comes that break. We'll be right back. And that is a guarantee. To learn more about cultivating sustainable well-being at home and the office, visit HarvestingHappiness.com and explore Lisa's experiential on-site brain fitness workshops, corporate programming, and speaking engagement services. Welcome back to the show. If you're just joining us now, we are having a conversation about caring for people with Alzheimer's disease in a new light of hope. Let's return to the conversation with Dr. Gayatri Devi that originally aired in December of 2018. 
And prior to the break, we were talking about a horrific story of a woman who was diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease. And Dr. Debbie, once you saw her in your, in your practice, you realized there was a misdiagnosis. That is correct, Lisa. I actually found out that she never had Alzheimer's. Her memory was actually better than mine. And what her problem was, was that she had had an atypical form of Alzheimer's, of Parkinson's disease, which was diagnosis Alzheimer's. However, because of the stigma that's associated with Alzheimer's, because of the sense in amongst all of us living in communities that Alzheimer's is a disease associated with incompetence, people began to treat her differently. And because she was someone who was very sensitive to the stigma, because she didn't want to appear to be incompetent or she didn't want to be made fun of, she stopped talking to people and withdrew into herself. And so it created this dynamic which was basically fueled by fear, stigma, and a lack of knowledge that led to her being shut into herself. And the saddest part of the story is even after I'd made the diagnosis of Parkinson's disease, and even after she'd been treated for it, she never was able to re-engage in society that the way she used to, because over the preceding five years, she'd just been treated differently. She'd begun to view herself differently. Yeah. And it ended up with her just creating a prison inside of herself that others contributed to, not because they wanted to. Everyone was well-meaning but because we didn't understand that people could be functional and have Alzheimer's, and she was tired of defending her daily competence. She, she didn't mm. want to have to say every day, look, I can do this. I'm, I'm a competent person. I'm functional. And I think that's important for us to remember that most people with Alzheimer's, I would say 90 to 95% of people, are competent and functional and able to function as parents, as grandparents, as yes as um, accountants, as electricians, they can do that. The people who get diagnosed are a small fraction and a smaller fraction, a very small fraction of those people actually end up in nursing homes. So we have to understand there's a true spectrum with this condition, not be afraid of seeking treatment. And also because of the stigma associated with Alzheimer's, I tell my patients and their families to be a little bit careful about who they tell. Because, yeah. it, because even the most well-meaning persons in the community don't know how to react. They don't know how to act around someone with Alzheimer's. So that's part of the problem. Well, you know, it's interesting that you mentioned that because when my dad received his diagnosis, he is the quintessential optimist. You know, he was like, you know, by the time it gets bad, if it were to get bad, I'll be so old, I'll be ready to go. So it, for me, I'm okay. I mean, I, I, he really has such a grasp of this. And as a result, the way the family has reacted to it and, and those around him have reacted to it um, are, are, are quite lovely. Like nobody really pays attention to it because he's made it okay for everybody and his doctors have made it okay for him. That, that is, that's so important, that kind of attitude where someone says, look, you know, I, I have patients, for example, I have a patient who's a very high-functioning executive who has memory issues. He has a more typical kind of Alzheimer's that affects about 50% of people who have it, who are diagnosed. Um, he says to me, he says, so I forget. So what's the big deal? It's not like I have cancer and I'm dying from it next year. 
you know? So he yeah. has the ability to relegate some of his memory functions to his secretary. He's still functioning. Um, and he's able to approach it in a way that makes it easy for people to interact with him. Um, he creates he creates the framework, and I think a lot of that comes from the doctors, from the healthcare givers, healthcare providers, and also from the patient themselves. What's interesting, Lisa, what I've noticed time and time again, is it's more commonly the male patient the the that that can respond in that way. Women who have Alzheimer's tend to become more depressed. Um, and lose confidence a lot faster um, than than men with Alzheimer's. So it's an interesting um, fact that I've observed in my years in working in this field. Let's talk a little bit also, about uh, the care we can take of ourselves, um, how we might be able to either prevent, if it's possible, or help strengthen the brain if there is a diagnosis? Are there any um, games that we can play or processes that we can do that might improve, help improve? So the, 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 the research to date says that between 30 to 60% of Alzheimer's can be prevented. The current case, so that's a huge number of cases of Alzheimer's that can be prevented by adopting simple lifestyle modifications. Um, and that includes things like aerobic exercise three days, three, three days a week for 30 minutes. Uh, it includes things like adopting a Mediterranean diet, a diet that's a healthy diet, low in saturated fats, maintaining a normal um, body mass so that you stay on the healthy side instead of gaining weight and, and causing illnesses that come from that. Controlling diabetes and heart disease if you happen to have those conditions. Controlling high blood pressure. Making sure that your alcohol intake is not more than a prescribed amount. Usually I tell my patients they can have a couple of glasses of wine a day or a bottle of beer, um, if, if that, that, but not too much more than that. Um, making sure that you don't involve yourself in activities that can cause more head injuries. So staying away from things that, uh, like boxing, say, or, or activities like that. Um, those are all um, important lifestyle modifications that one can adopt. And in addition to that, staying engaged socially, making sure you have a good circle of friends so you're not socially isolated. That's been shown to help prevent or delay onset of symptoms, even in the face of pathology. Making sure that your brain is as engaged as possible, that you unlock the brain potential that you have by engaging different parts of the brain. So if you're somebody who spends most of your time in front of a computer, go out and take some painting classes. If you're somebody who is a carpenter who works with furniture, then perhaps you may want to take up Sudoku or uh, take up crossword puzzles. So in other words, engage different parts of your brain so that you're not somebody who's kind of a bookworm who also does Sudoku but never does anything physical or something engaging a different part of the brain. Try to improve your cognitive portfolio and keep different parts of your brain active because that'll make the brain more resilient to problems. And understand that 
um, that, that that kind of approach can stave off up to 60% of cases of Alzheimer's. That's incredible. I didn't realize that um, it was that preventative. I want to ask you a question about the relationship between um, untreated depression and Alzheimer's. I was reading a study uh, about shrinkage of the hippocampus, the part of the, for our listeners, I, you know what this is, the part of the brain that, that deals with memory shrinks in prolonged um, untreated depression. Can you talk a little bit about that? Um, so the, the hippocampus is a part of the brain that's very, very sensitive to their changes. So if you, if you um, have, if you stop breathing, for example, or if you um, have any trouble with glucose being sent to the brain, the first part of the brain that gets affected is the hippocampus. So the hippocampus is just a very sensitive part of the brain, and there's a small part. It's about the size of your little finger, one on each side of the brain. And what happens is that um, when you have depression, you have high levels of cortisol. And because the hippocampus has a small number of nerve cells, the effects can cause death of the cells in the hippocampus or reduction in the, um, in the strength of the networks from the hippocampus to other parts of the brain. So there's some connection between depression and the onset of Alzheimer's later in life, although people are not sure whether people get depressed when they start to notice that they have cognitive problems and therefore then um, are then later diagnosed with Alzheimer's or whether depression in and of itself causes or is a risk factor for Alzheimer's. In my practice, I make sure I treat, I'm very uh, aggressive about treating depression, depressive symptoms, both in people who are worried that they're getting Alzheimer's and in people with Alzheimer's because it's um, improves, improves quality of life. We are out of time, and I'm going to ask you to come back because there's so many other areas that I I want to speak with you about and ask questions and 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 um, enrich our listeners' uh, lives. The book that we're talking about today is The Spectrum of Hope by Dr. Gayatri Debbie. The Spectrum of Hope is an optimistic and new approach to Alzheimer's disease and other dementias. In the book, she gives suggestions for diet, exercise, mental exercises, and recommends really a lifestyle plan to help people have quality of life, I think, regardless of the diagnosis. It's just good, solid advice, Dr. Debbie. Yeah, well, thank you so much, Lisa, for having me on the show, and I'd love to come back. Uh, we, we will definitely have you back. And here's the contact information to learn more. Please visit nymemory.org on Twitter at Gayatri Debbie. Here comes that break. We'll be right back. And that is a guarantee. Did you know that happiness is actually good for your health? Happy people live longer, are more productive, and make better partners, parents, and professionals. Connect with us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness. And follow Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen for a daily dose of inspiration. back to the show. If you're just joining us now, I urge you to download and share this episode. Why? Because sharing is caring. It's kind, free, legal, available 24-7. And we're talking about how to care for people with Alzheimer's in a new light of hope. 
My next guest is Dr. Eitan Okun, and this interview was originally recorded in March of 2018. Let's join this conversation. Dr. Eitan Okun, who has been a lifer at Bar Ilan University in Ramat Gan, Israel, having earned his master's and doctorate in immunology there. Professor Okun's research analyzed how stress can affect a person's immunity to various diseases. For his doctorate, he concentrated on the immune system, specifically how different nodes in our immune systems respond to various threats. Alzheimer's is Professor Okun's primary focus. Um, he's received funding from the Alzheimer's Association, the Fetter Family, and the Michael J. Fox Foundation. Welcome, Professor Okun. Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. Hi, well, it's uh, very my pleasure to be here. Well, I, I want to talk with you about the potential success of an Alzheimer's vaccine. So if we talk about potentials, the potential is high. Talk a little bit more about your research and as a prevention of Alzheimer's and what about in the treatment of Alzheimer's? So it's a good distinction uh, you did between uh, prevention and treatment. Here's the thing. As soon as uh, we feel that uh, one of our uh, family members exhibits uh, symptoms, abnormal symptoms of behavior, for example, he doesn't uh, remember uh, uh, how to get home. Uh, he doesn't uh, all of a sudden doesn't recognize people that he used to recognize or new people. It's difficult for him to or to her to memorize names, facts, events. Then we feel that something is amiss, right? But at that time point, if you look at the brain, you realize that in a specific uh, region of the brain uh, that has to do with uh, encoding memories, there is a considerable loss of tissue. It's the result of cell death in that brain region. And so if you think about it, is it possible to do any kind of treatment that will bring that lost tissue back? The answer is no. And so this is why prevention and delaying the onset or progression of the disease, in this case, Alzheimer's disease, it's important. Mm. This is the distinction between treating an already ongoing disease versus trying to prevent or delay it. And when you talk about the, the tissue loss in the brain, which part of the brain are you speaking of? Is it the hippocampus? Yes, exactly. It's the hippocampus, which is almost the first to be affected in Alzheimer's. Even though I have to say that there is no clear-cut definition of, of Alzheimer's in patients. Uh, whenever a patient goes to the, to the physician, uh, the physician has a hard job to make a differential diagnosis. And in many cases, it's not clear. It has an overlay of symptoms with other uh, seemingly different pathologies. It could be a mix between Parkinson's and Alzheimer's, frontotemporal dementia and Alzheimer's. It, it can be a, a variety of conditions and it's, it's not so easy, but uh, typically the hippocampus is uh, affected uh, early on. And the hippocampus is responsible for memory? Well, it's responsible uh, for um, encoding uh, memory. That's uh, true. It encodes, uh, first stage, it encodes a shorter memory. And afterwards, uh, this short-term memory is being uh, transformed into a longer-term uh, memory, which is encoded with time elsewhere in the brain. So uh, memories uh, shift their location in the brain with time. 
And when we talk about the immune system and maintaining overall health as part of a prevention program, um, can you also talk about the known relationship, if any, between depression, exposure to excessive stress, and how that affects memory and cognition? So these are, as we call them, environmental risk factors. Okay, so for example, uh, loss of sleep is a major uh, risk factor for uh, developing uh, neurological uh, disorders such as uh, Alzheimer's. Uh, Chronic stress is another environmental factor. Depression uh, is also involved, but uh, it's important to understand that none of these factors is a causative agent in Alzheimer's by itself. You can find many individuals that uh, are stressed uh, throughout their life, Uh, many individuals that uh, uh, exhibit uh, also sleep loss, and you will not find uh, them later on with Alzheimer's. You need to have a combination of factors that are both genetic and environmental, such as the ones we mentioned, in order to have a full-blown Alzheimer's disease. And the vaccine that is being worked on, How does it work on the body and why is it so promising at this time? So I should say that the approach of vaccinating against a specific protein in Alzheimer's disease is a, it's not a new concept. It's been tested and done both in animals and humans for uh, several years now, uh, more than a decade, I should say. The difference is that our approach targets a specific group of uh, people. It's people with a condition called uh, Down syndrome. And individuals with Down syndrome, due to their uh, specific genetic uh, alteration, they exhibit Alzheimer's disease at a relatively younger age, in their uh, fifth decade of life. And a considerable um, percentage of these individuals will uh, exhibit Alzheimer's symptoms. And importantly, we know that Down syndrome can be diagnosed as early as uh, during pregnancy. And so this puts this population, a target population, for treating Alzheimer's symptoms very early on, which is an advantage in light of the lack of ability to perform early diagnosis for Alzheimer's in the general population. Interesting. Very, very interesting. And at what point in our development would the vaccine be administered? It's not clear for me the answer. So I I cannot tell you exactly, but we know that as we grow old, our immune system changes. So for example, when we are very young, when we're babies, the immune system develops So it's still too young, it's premature, perhaps for this uh, kind of vaccination. And when we are old, the immune system is getting less efficient. We see that also in in our mice. So we need to find a midpoint that the vaccine will be most effective. Uh, We also need to take into consideration that Alzheimer's disease is sort of being hidden under sight for several decades before it uh, appears in uh, clinical symptoms. Take this into consideration. So probably in the early decades of your life, perhaps uh, 30, perhaps 40, but I cannot tell you for sure. But it's neither young nor old. There's a sort of a sweet spot where the body is going to be most receptive to its value. Yeah, and plus, don't well, 
I cannot say don't forget because I didn't explain it, but the vaccination is against the protein that is made by the body itself. So we don't want to vaccinate too early against the protein that is made by the body itself. That's why uh, we need to find, really find that uh, soft spot. We're going to take a break. And when we come back, we'll carry on the conversation with Professor Eitan Okun about Alzheimer's and what's on the horizon in terms of a vaccine. To learn more about his work, please visit Okun Lab, and that's O-K-U-N-L-A-B dot Wixsite dot com slash Okun Lab. And I'm going to repeat that because it's a little bit of a unique uh, website. That's okunlab.wixsite.com slash okunlab. Here comes that break. We'll be right back. And that is a promise. Who says money can't buy happiness? Whether you are a skeptic or seeker, check out Lisa's new book, Are We Happy Yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life, a boot camp manual for greater emotional fitness, is available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, IndieBound, and HarvestingHappiness.com. Here's a truth bomb. Emotions are contagious, and happiness is a universally desired state. But we tend to forget that we all have the freedom to be happy or the liberty to be miserable each day, regardless of external circumstances. Explore the journey of human happiness, how to find it and keep it, with Lisa's documentary film, H Factor. Where is your heart? Visit HarvestingHappiness.com to learn more. Welcome back to the show. If you're just joining us now, we're talking about how we approach and care for people with Alzheimer's disease in a new light of hope. Let's return to the conversation with Dr. Eitan Okun that originally aired in March of 2018. Before the break, we were talking about how the potential vaccine works. And Professor Okun, I want to ask you now about how close we are to human trials and actually bringing the vaccine to the marketplace. Well, it's not uh, the best news. It it will not be in the next uh, decade. Uh, Hopefully, it will be before the next uh, two decades. Before I need it, I hope. (laughs) Just kidding. Well, you know, (laughs) it's not not easy to develop a treatment for an age-related disease in a timely manner. It's not easy because of the early time point in which intervention is needed. And the long time it takes for the disease to uh, emerge, it takes a lot of time to test drugs and early diagnosis. And you can't develop drugs before you have uh, early diagnosis, really. And it's very expensive. Most uh, companies uh, uh, withdrew their uh, efforts from this field because of that. And so, therefore, uh, I'm optimistic about the fact that well, I don't know if it's a fact, but I'm optimistic for the prospects to have a treatment at some point, but I'm not optimistic as far as the timeline. It's not going to be uh, real soon. And so it leaves us with the question of what can be done. I mean, we're sort of uh, seemingly helpless. And 
the answer that uh, people in the field uh, have is that engaging in uh, physical activity, aerobic physical activity, and in enrichment, cognitive enrichment, intellectual enrichment, is the only uh, thing you can do. And it's, it's really working. I mean, uh, physical activity benefits the brain and elsewhere in the body. It generates more blood vessels. It is beneficial for cognitive uh, activities and exposure to uh, stimuli, to uh, uh, enrichment in our uh, intellectual uh, capacity uh, causes the formation of more connections between nerve cells in the brain, uh, which is beneficial for delaying Alzheimer's. So that kind of intervention that's in the hands of everyone, really, almost everyone, and it's really up to people to determine whether they will do the maximum they can for themselves until a real solution in the form of vaccination, etc., will be out. Well, I think what you share about really lifestyle management is so important, not just for the prevention of the onset of Alzheimer's, but also for a quality of life and an improved immune system so we don't become susceptible to other diseases and illnesses. I, I'm not sure that uh, the interventions I mentioned necessarily affect uh, our susceptibility to infections. For example, it's pretty much shown that too much of a good thing is, is bad. For example, too much of a physical activity actually is de detrimental for you. So uh, it was shown that people that uh, engage in physical activity every day, I mean excessive physical activity, actually their immune system and their susceptibility to infections, the susceptibility goes up. As in many things, you need to do it in a, in a good uh, dosage. For the average person to get out and have an hour a day of exercise, let's say, or engaging on a regular basis in new learning, eating a healthy diet, getting the right amount of sleep, having these good connected social relationships, sort of the prescription for a good life is helpful also in the prevention of disease, isn't it? So with respect to sleep, I agree. Sleep is important for uh, preserving memories and to moving them from short term to long term so that we will be able to actually perform a learning experience. So that's important. We know that physical activity, that's important. Diet is known to be so bad diet, like what we call unhealthy diet, uh, uh, which it's good, but it's really difficult to say what is a good diet. There are so many views on this and really we differ so much between us that there is no specific diet that is good for all of us. The way we metabolize food is so different between ourselves that uh, there is no single prescription as far as diet goes. And when I say diet, I don't mean getting losing weight. I mean food content, the type of uh, ingredients we, we eat. Uh, this is really tricky to say what's good for us in order to maintain a healthy life and to prevent diseases, okay? I had to say that because it's really unclear and there is no clear answer there. What about geography? In other words, people who live in areas of the world where the Mediterranean diet, for example, is part of their their daily experience versus people, let's say, here in the States where that diet is not as common unless it's consciously adopted. What is the difference between the kinds of diseases 
that people get in the Mediterranean region versus, let's say, here in the U.S.? I'm not saying that Mediterranean diet is, it's not clear whether it's a Mediterranean diet responsible for a good health. It's, it could be a mix between genetics and the diet composite, dietary composition. If you look at the people in Japan, for example, it's an isolated, well, at least until recently, isolated population with its own genetic uh, pool. That uh, and you may be lulled into thinking that, uh, well, let's look at their diet and and we'll have a beneficial effect as they do. But it could be also due to their genetic background and or even a combination between the two. So again, I cannot tell you about whether Mediterranean diet is is a, an important factor. And anyways, I don't think that people in the Middle East have less Alzheimer's than people in the in the U.S. Oh, I think the question was more about the the kinds of diseases that you see more or less of in each of those regions, or maybe there isn't any. You know, people, it's random. People get what they get. I, I don't, I don't know. It's such a complicated topic that it's difficult to discuss it within the frame of the show, but... I can tell you that uh, if you look at the map of the world and you look at the predisposition to have uh, diabetes, for example, it's pretty evident that there are hotspots. For example, one of those hotspots is the USA. Hmm. And you can think to yourself, well, what is the reason for that? And, and there are several hypotheses, but, uh, you know, nothing that you can say for sure, definitely, that this is the cause. People think that the diet is involved in a, a metabolic syndrome that causes uh, diabetes. Others think that diet has to do with effects on the, the microbiota in our gut, and that eventually affects... Well, microbiota is the composition of microbes, uh, which include bacteria, viruses, fungi in our uh, guts. And people think that... Um, uh, they, the microbiota can affect uh, the propensity to have diabetes. So it's a very complicated story here. You cannot say, for, you know, a clear thing about it. I hear you. I do think it's interesting, though, about, you know, like identifying hotspots for certain diseases. I think that's pretty interesting. You know, when you say, OK, diabetes in the in the U.S. lights up in that category and we understand why with the average diet. And then maybe there are other countries where something else lights up. And that's what you're suggesting, I believe, is that the, the, the DNA, the genetic factor is as important as the diet and the, in, and the environment. Definitely, perhaps even more. Fascinating. What other research have you been conducting? Like, are you working on new ways to diagnose Alzheimer's earlier? What else are you doing? We do multiple projects because, you know, it's, it's difficult not to start a project if, if you think about a good project. So, uh, it's part of the freedom in the academia to follow up your dreams. We do have a project on developing means for an earlier diagnosis of uh, neurodegenerative diseases such as Alzheimer's and Parkinson. We also have a project in which we try to validate findings from animal studies that show that uh, physical activity is beneficial for uh, our long-term uh, memory capacity. So we try to recapitulate in uh, humans. And we also have a study that looks at the mechanism by which uh, physical activity helps generating uh, new neurons in the brain. It's a process called uh, neurogenesis. So while you lose a lot of neurons or 
should I say, nerve cells in the brain every day. Uh, there is this uh, one or two brain regions in the brain. Uh, one of them is the hippocampus we mentioned earlier, in which uh, there are new cells being formed every day. And so it was shown in animals that uh, physical activity enhances this capacity. And so we try to look at the mechanisms uh, by which it happens. And perhaps we will be able to find a factor, uh, a biological factor that we can uh, provide it externally to promote this process. I remember reading a, a recent study a few months ago. I believe it was from Japan about tango dancing. Are you familiar with that study? It was from memory. No, I'm not familiar. That they took some older dancers and the dance was specifically tango. And the idea was, or the result was because the dance is very, very complicated, that I guess the repetition of these complicated moves and learning the dance was uh, helpful in maintaining memory. Well, I cannot uh, comment on that because I didn't read the, the paper, but, you know, I can ask questions that everyone should ask themselves. Did they compare it to a different type of dance? Did they compare it to a different type of uh, activity? So it's, it's difficult to relate to it because I can tell you that, you know, perhaps it's the social activity that, ca that comes with uh, practicing tango. You know, you need two for tango. Yeah. Uh, perhaps that's a factor. I, I don't know. It's difficult to relate to studies, uh, but any kind of activity that benefits the elderly, I, I'm for it. We are out of time, and I want to send our listeners over to your website, which is a little bit of a unique one. It's the Okun Lab, and that's O-K-U-N-L-A-B dot Wixite, W-I-X-S-I-T-E dot com slash Okun OKUN Lab. Once again, that's OkenLabWixsite.com slash OkenLab. My guest today has been Professor Eitan Okan, and we're talking about Alzheimer's. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, we're going to carry on the conversation with a younger man who's got a unique story about his father's journey with Alzheimer's. Professor Okan, thanks for joining us on the show. My pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness. This is Lisa Cypress-Kamen and my guests today, Dr. Gayatri Devi and Dr. Eitan Okun, wishing you kind thoughts, kinder words, and the kindest of actions. Until next time, remember, happiness is an inside job. Happiness is your inside job. Go out and rock your day. Keep harvesting your own happiness anytime and anywhere from the comfort of wherever you are. Subscribe, listen, and share hundreds of downloadable episodes via our free app or from our libraries at toginet.com, iTunes, Google Play, and other fine podcast platforms. To learn more about Lisa's global consulting services, please visit harvestinghappiness.com. Spread more joy by liking us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and following Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen. Harvesting Happiness is produced in collaboration with Toginet Radio, KBUU, and is available on PRX, the public radio exchange. <laughs>